Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 16. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and he came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This is God's word. <clears throat> Excuse me. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm uh, one of the pastors here as well at Redeemer. Good to see you this morning. Let me just reiterate uh, that announcement Jonathan made uh, before we get into the sermon this morning. We, uh, the, the Vision Dinner we're having Wednesday, uh, we have hired an architect uh, because uh, we are, again, at capacity in this room. It was a problem before we planted a church, uh, and it's quickly become a problem for us again. And so we can't, even though our strategy is to multiply through church planting and really grow through that multiplication, we can't plant churches fast enough and we find ourselves in this situation where there really isn't hardly room. I know it may not feel like that, but it just, you know, 80% in a room and all that kind of stuff they tell you. Uh, and so we're back to thinking about how do, we, how do we promote growth here? How do we maximize the use of the six acres that we have here at this site? What kind of buildings might we look to build one day in the future? How do we, how do we balance all of that with, with staying on the vision, uh, which is to not sink a bunch of money into concrete, but to sink it into church planting and to seeing people uh, come, come to faith? And so we, the first step in that is to really have a town hall to say, what are your dreams? Before the, the, the pastors, the elders, the leaders speak into that, what's the congregation's dreams about what, uh, what the facilities here at this, uh, at this property at 1410 Dundee Road might look like? And so that architect's going to come He's going to run that town hall meeting. It's an important meeting, so please, you know, please be here if you can Wednesday uh, and, and uh, help us with that. It would be really great to have you, okay? So thanks for that. Now, we continue this morning in a series on the seven deadly sins during this Lenten season. 
Uh, and it's appropriate because Lent is typically a time where you spend some time uh, focusing on yourself and self-examination, really thinking about some of the, you know, the, the cobwebs in the corner, so to speak, that we don't deal with on a regular basis. And, and so every week we're taking, <clears throat> excuse me, a different of, of these seven deadly sins. And I told you last week I wasn't going to let the cat out of the bag, and then I did as far as what we were going to talk about this morning. So I, I told you that we were going to talk about envy, and you still came, which means most of you probably think you don't have a problem with it, and that's a good thing. I'm not going to tell you what's coming from here on out, though, because I know you'll pick and choose. These sins are called deadly because they are just that. They're lethal. They're signs and signals of of a deep infection. And so if you use the analogy of a tree, which is fairly common um, historically, even in the discussion of the seven deadly sins, pride, you would say, is, is the root system. It's the root of the tree. It's the root system of all sin in many ways. And the rest of these seven deadly sins are, are often characterized as the trunk, the big round trunk that comes up out of the ground. And then, of course, from the trunk come all the branches, all of the particular instances of sin that grow out of the bulk of the tree. Now, our goal, our goal, because it's what the Scripture calls us to, but our practical goal even in this series, our goal is, is, to, cut, is to cut down the tree and grind up the stump until absolutely nothing remains. Okay, so a little pruning, you know, if you have an oak tree in your front yard about every year or so, you've got to get somebody to come out and kind of cut, the, you know, cut it back just a little bit and keep it from hanging down too low, but a little pruning like that won't do. That's how we usually deal with sin. That's how we usually do it, but we're going after the whole thing. We're going after the whole thing, and that's why we're talking about uh, the trunk, because it doesn't do just to cut a limb off every now and then, here and there. We need to go after the things that are at the very base of our lives. And so this morning we come to the sin of envy. And envy is not something you do, it's something you feel. It's subterranean, it's often hidden, it's a matter of the heart, which makes it harder to get after uh, and makes it more crucial to do so. Uh, and this is the one of the seven uh, sermons in the series that I feel the most about. Uh, it's the one that affects me personally the most, and that's for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that, and I'm weighing... I'm weighing how honest to be. Um, I have been all week. Uh, but, but let me say, uh, the, the first reason is that I feel the sting of envy in my life more than the other sins. And by that I mean, and please, please, know, please know my heart when I say this, but I've been, I personally have been sinned against through envy more than any other, any other of the deadly sins. Now, I sin against people uh, with pride. I'm a proud person. I'm so proud that I don't, I don't often envy. I mean, I'm so awesome. Why would I want to be like, you know, somebody else? <laughs> and it's, it's gross. That's gross. You see how gross that is? And so though I do my sinning through pride a lot of the times, I really feel the sting of sin uh, and have felt the sting of sin through envy. Now, I don't know if we're ready for that kind of honesty, but there it is, okay? And so maybe you'll be honest with your sins if I'm just throwing myself out there in public as I want to do. Now the second reason uh, that I think that this is an important sermon in the series for us is I think it's the place where uh, there's the most potential for us as a church, this church in particular, to do uh, the most sinning against one another. Kierkegaard, he said that envy is what he called a small town sin. In other words, it breeds on proximity. Uh, It's a byproduct of living in close proximity to the same people over long periods of time. 
And so it's hard, in other words, to go through your life with the same group of people and not begin to compare yourself to one another. We don't typically envy people from a distance. I, I don't, I love him, but I don't envy Tim Keller. He's a you know, pastor in New York City. I live in Winter Haven, Florida. He pastors a church of 5,000 people plus. We're a church of 500 people. So I'm not tempted. I'm not tempted towards envy in the same way that I could be tempted towards envy uh, with one of the you know, church planters in our network, say Lyle Caswell in Lakeland at Christ Community or so forth. We are, most like to, we are most likely to envy people who are close to us, who are like us. Let me say it even more strongly. We are most likely to envy the people we call friends. And many of us in the room are longtime friends. And so there's a real danger. There's a real danger that we should be really, really careful of here. And then there's a third reason. And the third reason is, is that I think this sin is so pervasive. My, my job in this series is to, and isn't this a great job? My job is to convince you uh, that you have a problem with every one of these seven deadly sins. That's my job. I haven't done my job if I don't do that. And that's going to be harder in other weeks. It's, abs- it's so easy today. So easy. Freud believed that envy is at the heart of much of what we do. He basically said it's the currency for all of human interaction. A little bit of trivia. We use the expression green with envy. Anybody know why? He's green with envy because envy is personified in ancient literature as a sickly person. It's a serious heart condition. Listen to Proverbs 14. Envy makes the bones rot. Or one more proverb, proverb uh, Proverbs 27.4. Wrath is cruel and anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before envy? So the proverb there says it's a bigger deal than even wrath or anger. That most of us, every single one of us in fact in the room, uh, have a problem with this. And it was Saul's sin too. This is a text here, 1 Samuel 18, about, about the ruin of envy. About how it can ruin a relationship and ultimately ruin a kingdom. Uh, it, was, it was Saul's pet sin. It, is, it was what stood between him and David, and ultimately the result uh, being that David replaced him on the throne. It brought his downfall. It's that deadly. And so we need to talk about it this morning, and we're going to do so under the same four headings that we're going to do every week in this series. You'll see them there in the outline that I've given to you. We first want to define what, what envy is. Secondly, we want to talk about, well, once we define it, where does it come from? Third... What's the gospel solution? How does the gospel beat it? And then lastly, if the gospel begins to beat envy in our lives, what's the change that would, that would come? What, what's the difference it would make? How would we begin to live differently? So you see there the definition, the source, the solution, and the change in regards to envy. So let's talk through this text together this morning, beginning just this with the definition. And simply, envy is, this is Aristotle's definition, is pain at someone else's happiness. Pain at someone else's happiness. It's weeping when others rejoice and rejoicing when they weep. But let's dig just a little bit deeper. I've got a couple of sub-points uh, that I want to walk through with you. First, envy, like all the deadly sins, is an inordinate or an, an excessive desire. But in this case, it is an excessive and inappropriate desire because it is a desire for something that belongs to someone else, something that is not yours. And because it belongs to something else, what it does is envy turns the person into a rival. It sets you against them. And this is what happens to King Saul in 1 Samuel 18. Look at the scene. The scene here takes place immediately after David's victory over the giant Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. 
And you probably are familiar with that story. The, the Israelite army achieved a massive victory over the Philistines because of David's courage and bravery and ultimately his, his being able to defeat Goliath on the field of battle. And now they're returning home. And as they're returning home from the battlefield, the women in the cities that they, that they um, journey by come out onto the road to meet them and they begin to dance and sing. Verse 7, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And in the immediate verse, verse 8, we, we see what Saul's reaction to that is. What is it? He became angry. Why? The answer is envy. The women were complimenting Saul. You see that there, don't you? They were complimenting him first, but they give David an even bigger compliment. <laughs> they give David the most credit for the victory. David gets the praise that Saul won him for himself. David outperformed him on the battlefield. He was too afraid to go. As the king, it would have been his job to go and fight against Goliath, but this young, ruddy shepherd boy went in his stead He fought the giant when Saul was too afraid, and he won. And when the women began to celebrate him over Saul, something began to happen in Saul's heart, and it turned David into a rival. And look at verse 9. It's an amazing little phrase there. It says, he eyed him from that day on. He became suspicious of David. He began to look for a reason to hate him the way that he already did in his heart so that he would have justification for feeling the way he did. Just because David had been successful where he had not, he was predisposed towards hate for this man David because he allowed himself to view him as a rival. Now, you know this. I don't have to, I don't have to work really hard to explain this. Many of you have small children, and I'm sure this sort of thing happens in your house all the time. There's a play, playroom full of toys and one child begins to happily play with a particular ball, we'll say a blue ball. The second child enters the room, and what toy does the second child want immediately? It's a playroom full of toys. What toy? The blue ball. And absolutely nothing else will do. Why? Why is it that that happens that way? Well, it's because the first child is already happily playing with it. So it's not the ball. It's the first child's happiness with the ball that the other child can't tolerate. He sees the the first child's happiness, and he wants it for himself too. Now, before the second child came into the room, the first child could have happily put the blue ball down and moved on to something else, as kids would do. They play with something for a few minutes and then move on. But, but now that the second child is screaming at the parent for the blue ball, what's the first child going to do? You can't have my ball. It's my ball. I was playing with it first. If they even have the you know, words to express that. Why? Why does it work this way? Well, the second child's desire for the ball... It's not the ball itself. It's, it's the second child's desire. It's because my sibling wants what I have that I now want to keep what I have. It's not even that I'm particularly enjoying the thing that I have. Do you see this? There is great joy in having what something else wants. And if only children acted this way. Envy. Envy is the excessive desire to have what someone else has, to deprive them of their enjoyment of whatever they have because in our pride we've made them a competitor. Envy envy is so gross and it's so dangerous because it turns friends into rivals. 
And the bottom line for the envious is how they stack up against others because they measure their self-worth comparatively like Saul did. Pride is competitive. Remember we said that last week. It's not enough to excel. I must excel you. If I see you excelling me, well, we've got to do something about that. So first, envy turns friends into rivals. But secondly, it comes. It's rooted in a, a sense of powerlessness and injustice. Saul became angry at the compliment given to David because it didn't seem fair to him. Listen to what he says, verse 8. They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? He's whining like a little baby. And that's resentment. He's become resentful. The envious tend to be injustice collectors, Joseph Epstein writes. Listen to what he says. These are great words. He says, my neighbor, my friend, even my brother has something that I do not And this, for the envious, is intolerable. Listen to what he says. Why does he have it and not I? That's the chief, perhaps the only question for the envious, who have a deeper sense of injustice than others. They also have a restless competitiveness, which will not cease until they feel themselves clearly established as first among equals. They feel feel a fundamental unfairness in any good that comes in which they are not the most favored recipients. Why should the next fellow have a bigger house or a more beautiful wife or a better job or a sweeter life than I? And the answer for the envious is clear. He, and here's a dirty word that I can't repeat, but we'll just say he, the scumbag, should not. You have something I want. I'm not happy about that. I'm justified in not being happy because I deserve what you have and you don't. The world is not right as long as you have it and I don't. And so it's my job to do something about it. And so behind every, every act of envy, there's a, a sense of inflated justice and entitlement. So the fuel, even for our current political environment, the system runs on envy. Envy between political parties, envy between classes, envy between races. And the cry is always the same, and it's always just as childish. It's not fair. Jesus told a story about this. In Matthew chapter 20, about um, an army of workers that went into the field early in the morning. And about every two hours, the master kept adding a few more workers. So that by the end of the day, he hired the last crop of workers just an hour before it was time to shut off work. And so as they ended the day at work, the people that had been in the field for 12 hours, they came expecting to receive more compensation than the people that had only been working an hour. And they realized that the master paid them all the same. And it made them so angry. It made them so angry. And here, here are the master's words that Jesus intends for us to meditate on. He says, he says to them, are you envious because I'm generous? See, the envious typically think passively about their lives, the world, God, fate, society. They believe that some external force to their own sense of control has dealt them a bad hand. They feel cheated like those workers And their own efforts against such a great, distant, and alien force seem doomed. The deck has been stacked. That's the feeling. And so, you see, I need what you have. I deserve what you have. You don't. And here's where it gets really gross. So I'll take it from you if I have to. So third, envy actively works to sabotage other people's happiness. Envy isn't the same thing as covetousness or greed. It doesn't just want the same thing somebody else has. It wants to take the thing away from the envied person because the rival delights and the real delight is in watching the rival lose. So Romans 12, uh, 15, Paul commands us to weep with those who weep 
and to rejoice with those who rejoice, but envy rejoices only when others are weeping, and it weeps when they rejoice. Romans 12.5 describes a withness that should be true of our lives, that we should be so with one another that when, when some of us are weeping, the rest of us are weeping, and when, when a friend is, is, um, is rejoicing, I'm rejoicing with them, but what envy does is it takes that withness and it turns into atness. We're at one another. There's this competitive thing that's going on now. And so Frederick Buechner's definition of envy, which I really love, he says it's the consuming desire to have everybody else to be as unsuccessful as you are. And Dorothy Sayers, who said, Envy is the great leveler. If it cannot level things up, it will level them down. Rather than have anyone happier than itself, it would see us all miserable together. And there are many examples of this. You don't have to go very far. The evil queen, envious of Snow White in the fairy tale. Salieri, who envies Mozart's God-given talent. If that's a little too high culture. Jan Brady and the Brady Bunch always saying what? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. And of course, Saul, who eyed David secretly at first, but eventually finds his anger and his resentment, you see in the text, boiling over into attempted murder and rage. Envy is subtle, at least at first. It's treating a friend as a rival and trying to undermine them. And you can do that in a lot of different ways. There are subtle ways, whether it's withholding forgiveness when they mess up or dragging out the offense or just being quick to blame instead of love covering a multitude of sins or feeling pleasure when they fail. Secretly, of course. Or slighting them when you're given the opportunity or subtly turning people against them or being controlled, controlling and, and cold. And then eventually it escalates into gossip, to rallying other people to the cause and then to a public campaign of of sabotage and exclusion and full-scale hatred to bring them down, to cause them to hurt the way they caused you to hurt. And it's a righteous cause. Except it's not. And so all the writers that write about this say, if you, if you really dig into how gross, how really gross it is to look at your own heart and see those things, you see how tragic envy is. It leaves you more unhappy than uh, when you were at the beginning. And it's the only one of the seven deadly sins, writes Joseph Epstein, that's no fun at all. I mean, gluttony's a little fun, right? There's others that are a little bit of fun. This one is not. And then the last thing I would say is you see here in the text, like all sin, envy is irrational. It's insanity. And, and, and when you give in to it, like Saul did, you lose touch with reality. Now, now how, the, how the text says this, notice there, uh, verse 10, is, is, it says this about Saul. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house. So Saul's envy literally drove him crazy. He started to rave. And, and envy will do the same to you too. It'll cause you to lose your perspective. Uh, you'll lose touch with reality. So here's the summary. We're doing this, okay? It goes something like this in the heart. I lack something that you have. And therefore I begin to look at you and see, see you as a rival. I feel in my heart as, I, if I, as if I deserve this thing that I feel like I need to have and that you don't, and therefore I'm justified in trying to plan ways to take it from you and do whatever I have to to get it for myself. But what, what happens is, is I end up even more miserable and worse than miserable. I end up insane. Do you see how big deal this is? Now, we know from the scriptures that the key to finding sin is, is to deal with it in its subtle form before it takes root. And begins to progress to more, to more serious cases. This is why Jesus says adultery begins with lustful thoughts. So how do you prevent adultery, men? 
you deal with your lust before it becomes adultery. And so you have to deal with your envy when you find it in subtle little ways that are, I want to say harmless, but that aren't harmless unless you really nip them in the bud. And so I thought of a few examples from the past week of where I found envy in my own heart. Ugh, and this part scares me to death because I feel like I have to do this, but I don't want to. And it can look so harmless and subtle. Like one example is um, Canaan got the flu. He's, he's, you know, he's starting on the, on the high school baseball team. He got the flu. And he wasn't able to play Tuesday night. And so, of course, uh, someone started in his place. And, of course, he and I were texting all night long, how are they doing? How are they? And I'm thinking, oh, that he's 0 for 3. And I'm trying not to say, yes, he's 0 for 3. Isn't that ugly? I would have the team lose because my kid's not playing. Or I walk into, um, I walked into, we're having a membership class, and I walked into the membership class last, uh, last Sunday, and I saw um, a girl that was, in my, that was in my youth group that was literally like, like a daughter to us. And, I mean, I, I lo- I've, been, uh, I've walked through so many things with her. I married her and her husband. Um, it's just been, we just love her dearly. She's been in our house more times than I can count, and she was there, and I was like, oh, and she's, she's going to Jeff's church and not mine. <laughs> and it just hurts. You see that? Isn't that ugly? Instead of saying, that is awesome, you're going to Jeff's church, which is what I did, but, you know, inside. <laughs> or whether it's a friend of mine who's a pastor who's on a four-week vacation, and he's posting stuff on Facebook, and I'm like, oh, I need a vacation. I deserve a vacation. Do You see these subtle ways that can quickly become something much worse than they are if we don't really attack this in our lives. Now, how do you know then? What are some of the symptoms? I'm shaking. I'm so ner- I literally am shaking. Like, I'm clammy. Because I need you to think nice of me, and I don't know how you could because I'm not nice. Some of the symptoms, though, how do you know? How do you know if you're in the grips of this? And I just have, I have four C's before we move on. We've got to get going. The first is... Uh, envy really is rooted in comparison. So are you comparing yourself to other people? Is that, are you really gripped by a sense of just always comparing yourself? And by the way, social media is the worst for this. Social media is, is an evil genius laboratory for envy. It is. Do you know FOMO? Does anybody know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. Did you know it's now been added to the Oxford English uh, Dictionary as something that's real? Uh, in 2013, it is, it is described scientifically as a condition of anxiety that people are struggling with, that we're now giving workshops for people to help, help figure out how to deal with their fear of missing out. Are you kidding me? I'm telling you, it's an evil genius laboratory for, for, for envy. But are you there? Are you just, can you just not stop looking at other people's lives and, and always evaluating how you're doing based upon how well or how poorly they are. Number two, so there's comparison. Number two, criticism. Criticism is, is a sure indication and symptom of envy too. Will Willimon, he believes, he believes, and I, I tend to agree with him, he believes that 80% of the criticisms that we offer about others don't come from concern for the truth or passion to correct injustice. They come from simple envy. If you, if you can't, you know, the people that you're most, the people that you're most likely to criticize you ought to ask yourself if it's because there's envy somewhere. Third, complaining. 
complaining, this sense of just complaining about life, no enjoyment. Envy destroys your ability to enjoy the things that are in your life so that you just become a, a resentful, uh, needy person that really is not living from a place of gratitude. I mean, Aesop's fables taught us if all of life is sour grapes, maybe it's sour grapes because it's grapes you can't have, like the fox. And then lastly, the last thing that would be a symptom just for you to watch your own heart is, is this tendency to cut people out. You see what David did with Saul here? We're told that it became too much for him. He had just to remove him from his presence. He had to just get rid of him, get him out there. He couldn't, he couldn't deal with it. And so envy, envy really destroys relationships like that. It, it drives you into exile. It drives you away from community. James 4.1 says, why is there jealousy and fighting and all that kind of stuff among you? He says, if there are fights and quarrels and if, you're, if there's, you know, your relationships are like this and you can't seem to figure out peace, look and see if there's not jealousy and envy at work. So comparison, criticism, complaining, cutting people out, those are some of the symptoms so that you can begin to engage your own heart. Now, I have to go a lot quicker from here on out, but I really wanted to take the time for you to see that. So if that's what envy is, then where does it come from? And here I think the text is really helpful in the way that it diagnoses what's happening in Saul's heart. So let's read verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. And then again, the same kind of theme is picked up in verse 15. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Now, I've already said that envy is irrational. It's insanity. It's out of touch with reality. When we envy somebody, we tend to magnify their good fortune and at the same time minimize our own. And that's exactly what Saul did. Saul looked at David and he said, God is with him. Look at how everything goes right for him. Look at how full of good things his life is. And they didn't have Facebook back then, but Saul was still able to do this somehow. He said, God must really love him. And of course, how did that make him feel about himself? God doesn't love me like that. He hasn't worked in my life like that. So what you see is all of the attention of Saul is on the good things David has, all of the victories that David's able to achieve, the ten thousands that David has slain, but he's forgotten his thousands. He's not, he's not thinking about the good things that are his too, and when you're envious, you're thinking only about the things that other people have. You're not thinking about the things that you have. You're only thinking about what, what you don't have, especially in comparison to somebody else, and therefore the root of envy is ingratitude. It's ultimately, in other words, a me and God problem. It's not a me and you problem. And that's, that's the, we, we face it as if it's really it's an issue between you and me. And a lot of times relational issues between people are not actually between those people. They're actually between either both the people or one of the persons. It's a, it's, a it's a vertical thing. It's a me and God problem before it's a me and you problem. There are two basic ways that you can live your life, resentment or gratitude. And resentment, Joseph Epstein says, is a state of mind that leaves those it possesses with a general feeling of grudgingness towards life. That all of life is cosmic injustice. That the world is essentially antagonistic. Forces beyond my control are constantly conspiring and thwarting my happiness. And therefore, it's me versus you. It's my good or your good. It's never both. And that is the soil that envy grows in. I'm all on my own. It never works out for me. It always seems to work out for everybody else, but not me. We're told Saul was afraid. And that's where his envy came from. The text says that he was afraid of David, you see. But you and I know from experience that he was mostly 
afraid that David's success meant that God was pro-David and not pro-Saul. That's what he was afraid of. And if you believe that, it's easy for resentment to grow. But gratitude, on the other hand, is the posture that says all of life is grace. The world is charged with God's goodness. It's everywhere. My life is so full of goodness and grace that when good happens to you, I'm not threatened at all. I'm already overflowing with goodness. God is with you. God's with you. That's great. He's also with me. Now, he's writing different stories for the two of us, but whatever story he's writing for you and whatever one he's writing for me, it's good. Now, this is very different. I mean, if you look back at the first Peter passage that, that uh, we read earlier in the ser- service, uh, Peter says, he says, put away malice and envy and all these sorts of things, and then he tells you how to do it. He says there in verses 2 and 3, long for the pure spiritual milk, uh, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, Brian Hedges is, is an author who wrote a great little book on the seven deadly sins, and he writes that the most effective medicine for envy is the pure spiritual milk of God's goodness. Gratitude comes from tasting that the Lord is good. Not just knowing in theory, tasting, experiencing. And so he writes, gratitude is the posture of soul that receives this goodness, and gratitude is fundamentally incompatible with envy. Grateful people do not envy. Indeed, they cannot, which means that envious people are not grateful. Those whose hearts are overflowing with thankfulness to God for all of his kindness toward them have no room for envy's ugly face. Gratitude doesn't stop with God's kindness to us. It is also thankful for what God gives to others. And this is the true sign of a new heart. When you look at what God gives to other people and not to you. Do you hear that? When you look at what God gives to other people and not to you and you say, Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, because you've been so kind to them and to me. So how do you live like that? Anybody want to live like that? How do you live like that? With gratitude and not resentment. And the answer, of course, is the gospel. But how does specifically the gospel beat envy? Where does the text point us to the gospel? And I would just have you look all the way back up at the beginning of the, of the chapter, and it really is in the characterization of Jonathan, where we read this in verses 1 through 4. That the soul of Jonathan, Saul's son, was knit to the soul of David, and that Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan made a covenant with David, we read, because he loved him as his own soul. He stripped himself of his robe, and he gave it to David. Now, Jonathan is the anti-Saul. He is the opposite of Saul's envy. The, The writer of this passage puts them in contradiction to one another because he wants us to see how different Jonathan is from his father Saul. And I would say to you, everybody needs a Jonathan. I've got a Jonathan. Do you? And there's a choice. Are you a Saul or are you a Jonathan to the people in your life? See, envy is the opposite of love. Envy is having your happiness wounded by somebody else's happiness. Love is putting your happiness into the other person's happiness. Envy sabotages the other person's happiness and good. Love works for it. Love sacrifices for it. Love makes the other person's good the source of its happiness. And that's what you see in Jonathan. Jonathan's love for David is a picture of Jesus' love for his people. Jonathan took off his robe. Do you see that there? And he gave it to David. He's symbolically, what he's doing there, he's symbolically giving up his claim to Saul's throne and giving it to David. He's saying the kingdom is yours, not mine. He laid aside his claim to the throne. And that should remind you of someone else. 
that like Jonathan, Jesus Christ took, had crown rights too, that he was heir to the throne of the universe, yet he took off his robe. He laid aside his claim to the throne to come down and rescue us. The gospel of Jesus Christ reveals that God's heart for you is exactly the opposite of envy. He didn't die inside because we were happy. Can you imagine God being like that? That's what envy does. Envy dies inside because the other person is happy. No, he saw our misery and our sin, and he died for us to make us happy in him. Jesus loves you as his own soul. His soul is knit to your soul. Do you believe that? Just as Jonathan's was to David, he has put his happiness in your happiness, and that's the extent to which you're loved. I mean, the emotional root of Saul's envy of David was, God's not for me, he's against me, he doesn't love me, and the only way to be healed of your envy is to taste God's goodness, to look at the way he loves you in Christ Jesus. In truth, God was against Saul, we know that. And I should say that, but if your faith is in Jesus Christ, God cannot be against you. He will never leave you or forsake you, because on the cross, the Father turned against Jesus so that we could always say confidently, God is for me, God is for me. He is for me. And if God is for me, then my life is overflowing with good things, both the good things he gives to me and the good things he gives to others. All of life is goodness and grace. Jesus Christ died for my sins. In him, every promise of the Father is yes and amen. God is not thwarting my happiness. Jesus died to establish my happiness and goodness. And that's the truth. But you see, the sin of envy has long been connected to the eye. It is the green-eyed monster, according to Shakespeare, and Berenstein Bears, by the way, because it is largely a matter of what you look at. And so here's the question. What, what do you spend most of your time looking at? If you spend more time looking at Facebook than you do meditating on the goodness of God, you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. I should say it that way. And the remedy requires a regimen that will reframe our vision of the world, ourselves, and of other people. God is good to you. That's the truth of your life. So lastly then, if we came to believe this, what we celebrate in this meal, what we see in the gospel of Jesus, what would the change look like? What does repentance look like? And let me just say very quickly as we come to the table this morning, envy undermines our love for our neighbor. That's the problem. It creates rivalry and competitiveness between friends and ultimately time, at times fractures relationships. Envy responds to the sin of other or to the to the uh, sin of others with gleeful condemnation that is forgetful of its own shortcomings and sin envy rejoices to see others brought down brought to justice because they deserve it but there's another way and it's found in Jesus's beatitude remember we're looking at these things in contrast with the beatitudes and in, and in Matthew 4 excuse me Matthew 5 4 Jesus says uh, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted what's what is what what is the opposite of envy it's sadness. And why is sadness the opposite of envy? Well, because envy is resentment at the happiness of others, but sadness is sharing in the unhappiness of others. I mean, the world is a source of mourning. It is and always will be a, a, a veil of tears full of disappointment and heartache. That is true. What do you do with your sadness? If you're intolerant of your own sadness, you'll become envious and try to take, it from, take from others. Or you can just be sad. Or, here's where I live most days, if you feel sad because it's working out for somebody else and not you, then you can just be sad that you're sad. Even if that's all you can muster. That's enough. To be sad 
that it makes you so sad when others succeed and you don't. To mourn your sin, not their success. What that does is that reestablishes that withness. It, it replaces the atness. Envy is the opposite of love. There is no love without sadness. And so if we're going to love instead of envy, we have to confront our sadness. We have to be those who mourn. Envy is a strategy for getting out of your sadness. Love means you stay. It means you stay and you, and you risk being sad. The more you love, the more sad you will be, but also the more joy you will have. And so if you're praying for me, which I hope you are, you can pray this. That, that, that old, I can't get away from C.S. Lewis saying, if you're going to love, you've got to know there's no safe investment. If you're going to love, if you choose to love, if you choose to love, you've got to know it's going to mean your heart's going to be broken eventually. So what we need is the courage to be sad. Because once we possess the courage to be sad, then we really will be able to fight this deadly sin. To weep when others weep and to rejoice when they rejoice instead of weeping when they're rejoicing and rejoicing when they're weeping. That's not the way God has loved us. The opposite, in fact. And it's what he calls us to do for one another as well. And So let's pray that he would continue to form in us the same heart for one another that he has for us in the gospel. Let's pray as we come to this table this morning. So Father, in these last moments of our service, we do pray that you would establish our hearts in your love. You tell us to abide in your love, to make our home in your love. That is what we ask and pray, that, that in these few moments we have to gather around this table to share this meal together, that you would make known to us yet again, that you would dispel the darkness of our doubt and our cynicism, that you would overcome all of that in our hearts, and that you would show to us in this bread and this cup, your body broken and your blood shed, the great lengths to which you have gone to assure our happiness and success and eternity, that we would be captivated yet again with your great love for us so that we would in turn find the strength that we need to selflessly love one another. That would be to your glory. And so we pray that you do it among us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, let's don't run from the work that this series would call us to. You with me? It's hard and scary, but let's not run from it. And here's where, here's where you find the courage to not run from it. 10,000 things would just be scratching the surface of really the truth of what God has done in your life. And, that, and that's, we're reminded of that yet again here at the end of our time together as I raise my hands over you to pronounce the benediction that indeed, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then everything uh, that, that this benediction promises is yours. He's turned his face towards you to do good to you. And that, that's the truth of everything that happens to you from now until the time we see one another again. And so receive this benediction. May it flood your heart. Uh, with contentment and gratitude and joy. May it overthrow uh, the envy that's so pervasive in all of us. Uh, may it make us a community of people who truly love one another uh, well uh, and who repent one another to one another well too. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.